Thank you for checking in with us and listening to our new series, Is Christianity the White Man's Religion? Learning from Black Voices that Have Shaped the Christian Faith. In today's episode, we conclude our, our Sunday School series in Jonah chapter 4, and we transition into our first session of our new series. So check in with us weekly for our new updates, and we hope you enjoy. Any any other um, aspects of life? My group, uh, we talked about, um, how do you usually say it? Ethical animal um, killing or raising? How you say farming. Yeah, farming. <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 yeah, I talked about how, you know, some people are very conscientious about, well, some people are, are conscientious of the point of being vegetarian, being vegan. Um, and then there's a whole spectrum, right? Like, I guess if you go to Chipotle, you're being responsible. Yeah, and I even just thought about just even how, um, as a whole, not saying specifically anyone here, but I think as a whole, in regards to like the LGBT community, the the American church has took more of the stance of hell, abomination, versus really caring for the personhood, um, seeing still the dignity um, in this person. And so just even now turning to Jonah, um, this is kind of what we're going to see in chapter four, the, the heart of Jonah. Um, so even just doing a quick recap, in chapter one, God instructed Jonah to go to Nineveh and preach to the Ninevites. And in chapter one, it literally said that Jonah literally fled from the presence of God. And this fleeing, and we know that, that God is, is, is omnipresent and that there is no room on this planet that, that we can walk into to get away from God's presence. But this fleeing is not a physical fleeing, but it's more so of a relational fleeing. And that, that Jonah has something, something, some type of pleasure or idol has crept into Jonah's heart that when he did not receive it made him want to flee the presence of God. And even in, 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 in three times in this book, Jonah even said, I am ready to die because I did not receive what I want. So now we're just going to kind of stay with the um, flow of Sunday school. Or we're going to read chapter four and do kind of an inductive study. And then we're just going to kind of break up back in our groups and continue to ask the question. Um, looking at Ch- Jonah chapter 4, it reads, uh, verse 1, it says, Jonah was greatly displeased and became furious. He prayed to the Lord, please, Lord, isn't this what I thought while I was still in my own country? This is why I fled towards Tarshish in the first place. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, abounding in faithful love, and one who relents from sending disaster. And now, Lord, take my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. The Lord asks, is it right for you to be angry? Jonah left the city and found a place east of it. He made himself a shelter there and sat in its shade to see what would happen to the city. Then the Lord God appointed a plant and it grew over Jonah to provide shade for his head to rescue him from his trouble. 
Jonah was greatly pleased with the plant. When dawn came the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant and it withered. As the sun was rising, God appointed a scorching east wind. The sun beat down on Jonah's head so much that he almost fainted and he wanted to die. He said, it's better for me to die than to live. Then God asked Jonah again, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? Jonah said, yes, it is right. I'm angry enough to die. So the Lord said, you cared about the plant, which you did not labor over and did not grow. It appeared in a night and perished in a night. But may I not care about the great city of Nineveh, which has more than 120,000 people who cannot distinguish between their right and their left, as well as many animals. So now just kind of break up um, in groups of three and four and really um, focus, focus on Jonah's heart. Like, focus on what is his core problem. Like, what is his core concern? What is really making Jonah so angry, angry enough to die after this miraculous thing has just happened? Jonah himself. He fled from God. God sent a storm to try to stop him from fleeing and he even told 
the sailors that if you want to live, just throw me overboard, like just kill me. God still showed him grace by sending a huge fish, maybe a beluga whale, we don't know, to to swallow Jonah and save Jonah. And right here in the pits of Jonah, he's fainting for his life. In chapter 2, it literally says, as, as my life was fading away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you in your holy temple. So when, when Jonah, in a sense, hit his rock bottom, when he had his last breath, that's when he repented, turned back to the Lord. And his last words and his prayer was, salvation belongs to the Lord. Praise God. Jonah is happy. He's praising God. The fish, um, the fish spits him up. He's back on land. And God gives him grace again by giving him another chance to go and complete his mission. And it's true. Uh, we, uh, we talked about last week, focusing on chapter 3, that the Ninevites was a wicked, wicked city. This was not a tourist place. This was not a place you want to go on vacation. Um, that literally all... Jonah just said, in 40 days, um, you're going to be destroyed. And everybody from the top to the bottom, from the poorest person to the king himself, um, said, hey, let's repent. Let's stop all of the evil that we are doing. Jonah, Jonah don't got to tell us about our evil because we already know we some messed up, evil, killers, all that, right? And they repent. This entire city turns to the Lord, stops their evil, and just think about how how special this this place has just become. This this place that was just this evil, wicked, troubled place. Now everyone in this city has turned from their wicked ways. And if and if I'm Jonah and if, and if I just preached this fire sermon and I got in, in, an altar call lining up, I'm not going to leave the city. I'm going to spend some time here like, like, hey, I'm going to try to feel like a celebrity almost. But even thinking about Paul, Paul, his, his mission in, in the New Testament was to go from city to, to city, preaching to the Gentiles, starting churches. And he would not only start these churches, but he would stay there for a time to teach these new believers how to walk and live out their faith. And we see in chapter 4, Jonah preaches this sermon. Everyone repents. He's angry and he leaves the city. And he actually goes, sits up on the hill, pops some popcorn, and sits back to watch and see what God is going to do. Think about how messed up Jonah's heart is right now. These people repented, but in his heart, he still want to see these people destroyed. It says he built a temple on the hill outside of the city, and he's looking back on the city, probably waiting 40 days to see, okay, God, when you going to do it? I can't wait to see it. I got a first row view. And we see... He is so angry, and we just talked about it, like, he's angry, like, that's like me getting mad at my wife, like, you always cooking me dinner, you always, <laughs> like, you always so nice to me, stop, it's just like, what, that's, that's twisted, right, but so why is Jonah so angry, and um, some, like, many people, 
I think it's fair to say that Jonah is really angry because he doesn't want his God, the God of Israel, to show, um, to bestow, to give his grace to, to others. He doesn't want, because we all know that Israel is God's covenant people, that, that God has a specific love for Israel and Jonah is saying I don't want you to treat them how you treat us mm -hmm. yeah. almost like that um, child who sees his mom giving candy to another kid and he runs up ah that's my candy mama stop you know he he doesn't want his his mom to treat another kid the same and I think um, maybe that's a fair thing to say but when I really just think about who Jonah was as a prophet, as a man of God, we got to go back to, to Genesis and Abraham. When God came to Abraham and made the covenant with Abraham, God says, hey, you are about to be the father of many nations. Like your descendants are about to bless the entire world. And God's covenant with Israel wasn't so Israel can, can become prideful and seclude themselves from the world but God's covenant with Israel was to be a witness to the world drawing the world to God and all throughout the Bible Old and New Testament we see that God's desire is for all men to be saved salvation came for the Jew and now for the Gentile it's, it's for all and Jonah knew this and even when Israel and 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 Exodus, when they were finally set free from Egypt, in chapter 12, it says that um, it says that they left Egypt along with a mixed multitude, which meant that there were some Egyptians when when the Israelites was leaving was like, hey, we seen these ten plagues, we rolling with child, like <laughs> like you got the real God, we serving your God. All throughout the Old Testament, we see how non-Israelites were always accepted and grafted into God's covenant people. So I have a problem with just simply accepting that Jonah is angry that God is showing his grace to non-Israelite people. I personally believe, and many commentators can say different things, and we all are different room here, but I personally believe that Jonah's greatest desire, his core concern, the reason why he is so angry is because he has made his race and his nation an, an idol. That he does not want to see the specific people of Nineveh saved. That the fact that God said, hey, go preach destruction to this people. And Jonah said, I'm about to run from your presence. God said, go preach destruction to these people. And Jonah says, just kill me now. This is the one thing I will not do. I do not want to see. I don't want them to have the chance to be saved. And you might think, well, maybe Nineveh was this wicked city. Maybe he didn't want to see um, a Nineveh saved because of their wickedness. Well, we also see Jonah in 2 Kings when God told Jonah to go and prophesy to, to the wicked king of Israel. And Jonah had no problem standing up to a wicked king. So, so eliminating all these different elements, I can't help but feel 
that that there was something deeper going on in Jonah's heart, even though he was this prophet, even though he was this godly man, maybe, even though he he um has this good history, maybe there's something going on in, in his heart with some prejudices and some racial issues. Now, um, kind of breaking back up into our groups, I want us now to think about chapter four again. Um, if you need to read it, read it again. But break up back up in your groups and think about. Um, let's focus on discuss the the comparison of Jonah's care for the plant, his love affair with this plant, um, and God's care for for these people. Talk about that. All right. Feel like the church announcements right now. Trying to try to get everybody's attention, but everybody. <laughs> so what were some of y'all answers? What were some observations between the comparison? Are you volunteering? Come on. You volunteering? <laughs> what were some observations or thoughts? Jonah seems to have compassion on things that benefit him. Oh, okay. Uh, the gospel. Not the gospel. Compassion on personal benefit. And then never Captain observed um, that Jonah's love for the plant, uh, even while it was benefiting him, was entirely passive. Um, whereas God's love for Nineveh was active, like he's sending a prophet to. Well, yeah, and I think there's even a parallel between, like, God made the plant grow. Where has this great city come from? Right, like, who's at the back of that, right? And uh, God made this plant great. Should I not love this great city? Like, I think God is reminding Jonah that he has purposes as the creator that Jonah has no idea about. You know? Ordained pastor, Terrence, you want to So, so what we. And this book is is so special because I think like most books kind of like land the plane, you know, it kind of like closes the story. Okay, people set free. Let's praise God. Next book. This book ends with like the middle of the conversation. It's like, God, you still talking or so like what? So like what really is that all about? And I really don't have any further. Um, oh, oh, what's up? I have a question. Okay. Your insight on why I mean Jonah's not just angry that Nineveh is saved and he's he's not just angry that this plant is gone now too he wants to die which to me is a whole nother level mm-hmm. of um, disappointment at the situation why do you think he was so not just angry and like <laughs> God like you know like I might say God like why do you let good things happen to these people and 
cause bad things to happen to those people who deserve good things. Like, yeah, I might be frustrated by that, something like that, but I'm not asking God mm-hmm. to take my life. Yeah. Um, why do you Why do you think Jonah got to the point of like I would just rather die? Yeah. And as I've been studying this, I don't like that's the same thing I've been wrestling with, and I feel that this really shows how how wrapped up or miswrapped up Jonah's heart is. Mm-hmm. If I don't get my way, God, like this is the one thing that if, if I don't get my way, I can't live with. Mm-hmm. Um, even thinking about how Moses, when God said, hey, Moses, I'm tired of y'all sinning. Y'all can go into the land mm-hmm. and I'm not going to be with y'all. You would think Moses would be like, I appreciate it, God. This is where we part ways. But Moses said, no, I'm not going without you. This land means nothing if I don't have you. And we see the complete opposite with Jonah mm-hmm. and saying, God, if I don't have my way, I don't want nothing. It's 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 either my way or the highway. Um, I personally don't see why in this passage Jonah can be like, oh, my plant died, God. God killed me now, but I I just think that just shows you how how miswrapped up Jonah's heart is in in things that are not of God versus God's heart. Yeah. Hmm? Um, I think if, if it's like a prejudice issue, then this could be like an identity crisis for Jonah. Like if I'm not better than mm-hmm. these people, these Ninevites, then I would rather be better. Mm-hmm. Which I think to me makes more sense if it's. Wrapped up in who he thinks mm-hmm. he is, like he's always thought he's superior, and now he's saying, "Oh, God doesn't think I'm superior." Yeah. So potentially that's correct. That's good. Mm-hmm. Thank you. I guess I, I also think he's got a kind of a disregard for his own life with the whole book, where he's sleeping in the storm. He doesn't care that the sailors are gonna die. He's he's in the like the fish for three days before he asks to get out. Mm-hmm. And all, like, and then really, it's like. It's at, he's at the point of death where he's rejoicing. Yeah. And then the fish vomits him up. He's like, he's kind of rejoicing because he's about to die. Yeah. And then guys like psych and spits him out and he's, you know, he's, he's like, okay, I guess I'll go. But maybe God will still destroy him. He's ready to die from the get. Yeah. It's just, it's just kind of strange. It's a lot of I think we think too, Sergio, of that question you asked at the beginning of like what people groups are we as believers mm. likely to ignore if like he had this focus, like I don't know biblical geography very well, but if he had this focused view of like the Israelites being the chosen people and Nineveh was somehow excluded from mm-hmm. that, but then all of a sudden they're included, mm-hmm. what does that mean for like how he's mm-hmm. viewed God and God's love for mm-hmm. the world? Cool. So uh, really kind of want to make this shift now into our next series for the sake of time. But we, I think it's fair to say that the book of Jonah is not necessarily about Jonah. It's about God's grace to all who repents and believe in him. Um, that's what the book is wrapped up in. It's about God's grace. But one of the takeaways that I want to see specifically for this sitting right here. It's that Jonah was a prophet, God's spokesperson, and throughout the book, Jonah had great orthodoxy. What that means is Jonah has great theology of God. 
in chapter one, they ask um, Jonah who he was. And Jonah says, I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. I fear the Lord who made the heavens and the earth as he is actively fleeing, not not fearing God. Even in chapter four, we see Jonah knows exactly who God is. He knows that God is slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. He has great orthodoxy. I mean, orthodoxy, not not orthodoxy, orthodoxy blended. But he has a terrible orthopraxy, which is the practice of your belief. And all throughout the book, I think it's fair to say that Jonah's knowledge of God has not truly transformed his heart. And I believe that that's the place of many of us here as well. I, I, I titled this lesson, Seeing Jonah's Heart Today, because if we are all honest and if we all look in the mirror and do some self-reflection, we all have a little bit or maybe a lot of Jonah's heart in us. And I'm not talking about just just solely racism or that, but like we all have some type of lack of concern for what really matters in our heart. We all fail to not only love God, but truly see and love our neighbor who is different than us, who, who maybe isn't as fortunate as us. And we all wrestle with Jonah's heart. And now kind of turning to the next series uh, we titled um, is Christianity the white man's religion learning from black voices that shape the Christian faith um, I believe that to truly understand and to truly see and be unified as a church we must first take a look at the foundation of this country but also take a look at the foundation of Christianity in this country and what I believe we will see is that Many people in our past, like Jonah, has had a great orthodoxy, but terrible orthopraxy. So, has anyone, who can tell me what this statue is? I don't expect no one to know what this statue is. <laughs> don't cheat, by. <laughs> This is Birmingham, man. This guy's good. So this statue is in Birmingham, and it's titled The Foot Soldier of Birmingham. So the story behind this this statue is that one day during the civil rights um, um, time, a big protest happened in, in Birmingham where, um, and then this boy, this picture was taken of this boy who went, and this picture was sent and national news of this protest, and it showed a police officer attacking this black boy who was standing his ground at the protest. And it kind of like became a symbol of hope and strength to people fighting for civil rights. And they later made a statue of it, and it still stands in Birmingham. Um, but, you know, we podcasters these days, I was listening to a podcast called Revisionist History and they did an episode about this statue and they interviewed that that boy who is now an older man and he literally said hey man I wasn't there for no protests 
<laughs> it was like, they were like, what? Like, the whole statue is about you being there for the protest. He said, I was just skipping school. He said, he said, I knew my that the king was in town. I really didn't care to go hear my little king speak. Uh, I would, uh, I would just walk in the home, and I kind of saw the protest um, over there. So I just thought I'd go get a closer look. And he turned the corner, and the police officer was standing there with his dog. And when he turned the corner, he turned into the dog, and the dog lunged at him. And the, and the police officer was trying to pull his dog back and push the boy back. But the picture. Wow. But so that doesn't mean that, you know, that, that the symbol or, or the meaning of that picture isn't true. But, but for this case, it was just funny how when you get the whole picture, you really can understand the situation and what really happened. And it's amazing how the person who is telling the story has the power to shape the narrative and in a sense shape history. And even though it is true that there were many protesters who stood up to, to police officers and were intentionally attacked back dogs, this statue doesn't tell the whole story. And in the case of history of Christianity, I believe something far worse has taken place. In the case of Christianity, there have been many men and women who have been blotted out from the pages of history and history has been rewritten to protect and idolize certain men. So, before I kind of go further, I just want to just be clear that the purpose for the next um, two months in this series is not for um, me as a black man to stand up here and cast shame upon white people. That's, that's, that's not what this is. And I hope that you guys know us and, and trust us enough to know that we are not going to do that. But the purpose for this series is to, re, is to retell the Christian faith story and to reshape our way of engaging others in the church and in this world. So now, um, who can tell me about Jonathan Edwards and George Whitfield? Have y'all ever heard those two names before? You? Hand, hand raise for me. Um, can y'all tell me just some fun facts about these two men? Michael Rose, I'm saying nothing. I know you know. Who about. <laughs> Michael Rose, like, hmm. Uh, is Jonathan Edwards the guy with the really like hellfire brimstone? Mm-hmm. Yeah, sinners and the hands of an angry God. That he's still um, taught in seminary and. Seminarians are still like required to read that Seminary. sermon. I had to read that in high school. Oh, uh, really? Wow. Yeah. Oh, wow. Christian high school, right? Yeah. Yes. yes. <laughs> Christian high school. Memphis City School. I Memphis had to read that in high school too, and it was public. School. Okay. Wow. Years ago. Yeah, it was in literature. Yep. Wow. I read it in 2014 in high school. Back in the day. Okay. Sorry, guys. <laughs> but Shelby County for me then. Let me make. <laughs> um. Anybody heard George Whitfield? Yeah, and he um, preached in many places. He helped encourage um, at least one Native American missionary, but he also had slaves. Mm -hmm. okay. I want—I didn't want you to share that just yet. I wanted to get out of the fun facts. 
both of Great Awakening preachers to mm. early stages of Christianity developed okay. in the United States that are really shaped yeah. Christianity in America. Okay. That's great. All right. So George Whitfield and John and Edwards, as Terry just said, are great awakening preachers. Which means when this country was started, um, it was even in my public school's history book, the Great Awakening was a time frame that we had to learn about. And it was the time frame where America uh, really became Christian. All these great uh, revivals began to take place. Um, America was at its moral peak, its, its moral high. Um, it was a Christian nation. And as um, myself, I didn't grow up knowing about John and Elvis and George Whitfield, but I began seminary and I was required to study George Whitfield and write papers on him. And, and, my, and my professors um, will always make these comments about how great and godly these men were. And one even made the statement to say, my prayer is that you be like these men. And I was like, yeah, great heroes of the faith. And then I started doing my own research and started to dive, and I quickly found out that Jonathan Edwards not only owned slaves, African descent people, but he refused to preach to slaves because they didn't have souls. Oh Even when you think about the foundation of this country, African people were considered three-fifths of a man. They were less than a man. They didn't have souls. And many preachers, quote-unquote, godly men, who, um, and we have to live in this tension of man. There were a lot of godly men who, who stood and studied the Bible, who, who, who had great orthodoxy, but it didn't shape all of their orthopraxy, right? And even George Whitfield, he... he his story is kind of twisted because he was a little bit more political and I feel he really uh, just tried to, to protect his political fortune because he said, at first, I don't agree with slavery, but he said, but before I preach to slaves, I'm going to make it um, law that um, just because you are spiritually free doesn't mean you are physically free. So we continue to see this wrestle and this tension of, of the quote-unquote godly heroes of our past are always held high and perfect. But when we really look at their heart and their core, um, something, something doesn't sit right, right? And many of us also don't know that the Pope, Pope Nicholas V, in 1452, issued the decree known as the Bull Ramonis Pontifex. I, I hope I'm saying that right. Latin, yes. Pontificus, whatever. Um, <laughs> and this decree declared war against all non-Christians throughout the world. That as the European church began to take voyages and, and search for new land and to expand their kingdom, the Pope declared war against everyone who was non-Christian. And he promoted the, con the conquest, colonization, and the exploitation of non-Christian nations. 
So the Pope said, as you travel and you meet people who are not whites and non-Christian, you have the right by God to kill them, to take them, to do whatever, to exploit them any type of way you want. 40 years later, 1493, Pope Alexander VI wrote the Doctrine of Discovery, and we're going to spend a little bit more time focusing on the Doctrine of Discovery in the next couple of weeks. But he wrote this letter, Doctrine, coming from God, sent it to Christopher Columbus, who just touched down, who sailed the ocean blue, blah, 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 that little saying. And what he said in the Doctrine of Discovery is those people aren't people. That's why we can say Christopher Columbus found America even though he was greeted by natives. Because these people aren't people. They aren't created in the image of God. This is the Pope. This is doctrine coming from God. He sent this same letter to Henry, the, the navigator who started the transatlantic slave trade. These people aren't people. They are savages. They are heathens. They are animals. They are beasts. This is the history of the church. This is the found this is the this is not just the history, this is the foundation of this country. And I know um we typically kind of use like the cliche of like man America, my greatest nation there is, and I'm not putting no shame or cast on America, but we here as the church, we have to be honest that the foundation of this country was not for non-Christian or people of color. That this was never God's will for his church. And even moving forward in history, there was something called slave Bibles, which omitted large parts of the Old Testament. And they really only gave these slaves verses to, to, to teach them obedience. Slaves, obey your masters. The black church was started not because black people um, was like, you know what, we don't like white people. Let's go over, over here and do our own thing. The black church was started because free black men uh, would go into churches and, and one day um, um, Richard Allen and, and um, was no Absalom Jones um, was sitting in the front of the church praying and a white man came up to him and, and told him to move. Your section is back there. And Absalom Jones said, I, I will move when I finish praying. When I say amen, I will get up and move. He, he was forcibly removed from the church and thrown out. Richard Allen and Absalom Jones are known as the ones who started the first, um, the first black denomination. And that's important, and I share that, not just as a fun fact, but even as we seek diversity and reconciliation today, I have heard some of my white brothers and sisters asking me, why is there a black church? Like, why do y'all make this black church? Like, why are y'all so divided? Like, we're here. Like, come be a part of us. And it's like, until you, we all know and understand and accept and acknowledge the history, the hurt, the trauma, the pain, that has been caused on many, we can never really move forward in unity. And so, I've, and one more thing, 
I'm gonna share, and I'm short on time. Um, even in regards to what I just shared, I <clears throat> when I was in college, um, a pastor, I'm gonna say, well intending heart, asked me a question. He said, "So Gregory, shouldn't you be happy that slavery happened? Because if slavery never happened, black people would never be Christians. Black people would still be in Africa, living in huts." But now you're in America, great country, and now you're a Christian. And maybe um, a lot of white people don't have the courage to maybe ask that to a black person. But at the time, I had just came to Christ, and I was like, I know this ain't right. <laughs> like, I know. But, like, I don't really know how to articulate it. And he a pastor, so I don't want to, you know, you know, you know cause a scene. <laughs> But I left with it like, man, he righteous, man. He <laughs> that's all I hear. That's all I hear. And, but I say that to say, like, there are maybe so many, so maybe, I'm going to say well-meaning, non-harming questions or perspectives that we may have only because we don't know the true history. And the true history, and, and history, how we have been taught has been wrong or not the full picture. So for the next couple of weeks, man, we really are just going to kind of walk down a timeline starting with um, the Bible and the New Testament and to look at um, the foundation of the Christian faith um, in regards to race and reconciliation and our church. Um, so that's it on time. I kind of had some closing discussion questions. Oh, wait, let me end with the gospel. Let me end with the gospel encouragement. Yep, can't. <laughs> I Richard, I got you, man. I my bad, Rich. I know you was down. I know you was down, Richard. So, um, Robert Ellis says that the solution to the heart of Jonah is the same sign that Jesus offered the religious establishment, the sign of Jonah, in three days in a sea monster, and that Jesus says, "I'm going to change all this through my death." burial and resurrection and so this the, the the gospel we have to keep the gospel always in front of us because it is by God's grace are we given the courage to first acknowledge and, and confess our shortcomings and our shameful past because we are no longer defined or identified by our past but we are, are defined by our position in Christ and in Jesus, we also now have the courage to go and confront and engage and seek to make right the, pre the not so pretty parts of our past. Mm -hmm. So I hope um, this class isn't for us to um, to just, you know, have a pity party. But there is some some unsettling tension with our past that we really have to be OK to sit in. And so I'm going to pray for us. I'm going to let y'all go get y'all kiddos, man. Get y'all some, some coffee. Then we're going to go worship Yahweh. Amen? Amen. 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 His name is Jesus.